Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. I'm here with Evan and O.C. Thomas. Evan's new book, First, the biography of Sandra Day O'Connor, is out. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for coming. Can we start with your decision to, to, to write this book? She's retired in 2005. I know you said in the, in the end of your book it was an idea from Kate Medina, who was the editor of Justice O'Connor's book, Lazy Bee. Yes. Uh, Justice... O'Connor had been thinking about writing her memoir for a while, I think at the prodding of Kate Medina, her old editor at Random House, but it never happened. And so uh, the family, and I, I guess, decided let's try to do a, have a biography done. So then they went looking for uh, writers, and I was already a Kate Medina author because I'd written a book about Nixon, and I'd gone to law school, so I was sort of an obvious choice Although there was an anecdote, which I'll tell you, you can, you can confirm this with Scott. Uh, this is the way these things Scott O'Connor. Scott O'Connor is the son of Justice O'Connor. He, he's told me that he went out to Bohemian Grove, which is this men's club uh, where they in the forests. And he was with Christopher Buckley, who's a humor columnist. And uh, Scott O'Connor went down the list of historians and biographers. And when he got to my name, Chris Buckley said, stop there. So that's how Scott told me they split on me. Uh, oh, she's looking. I, at I was going to say, add the rest of the story. The rest of the story is I sent uh, I sent an email thanking Chris Buckley, and I got back a very short email from Chris Buckley that said, "You owe me ten percent." <laughs> <laughs> you had incredible access to journals and her some of her Supreme Court papers. Yes. Uh, Pretty much total access with an important exception, which we should talk about. Uh, her, her correspondence, her papers are in the Library of Congress. They're closed. So we had to get her permission to see them, and we got total permission with the important exception that she uh, didn't want anybody to see her papers while there's a sitting justice. So initially that meant her papers were open to us, from 1981 to 1987, till Kennedy came on. Then Kennedy retired, so that opened them up to Justice Thomas in 1991. So we saw. So you went in in July and started reading yeah, away. Absolutely. That uh, we saw ten years of papers. We saw ten years of papers, uh, the complete, her complete papers, um, and we had access. To, her papers were interesting. The other way, she had a lot of oral histories that were done over the years lots of correspondence, and most interestingly, uh, not all of our correspondence was at the Library of Congress. We were in her chambers, and I'm going to let Osi tell this story, because uh, this is an interesting story. We had access to all her photographs, her personal correspondence, her calendars. We actually had her calendars in this house for about six months, and uh, and we realized after a year that the story of the marriage, which we knew the family wanted us to talk about, we couldn't tell because very completely because we had no letters between John and Sandra. So we no love letters. Where are the love where letters? Are the love letters from college, from law school, and we got permission to. See, we went down to the basement with her assistant, Linda Neary, and we got, we saw a box that said correspondence, a big banker's box. And we said, we'd like that box. 
so the they were just sitting in the basement of the Supreme Court. Yes. Okay. In, in the a, store room. She's in a store uh-huh. in her store, private okay. store room. And uh, so we started looking through the box, and in there were the love letters between John and Sandra, but also 14 love letters from Justice Rehnquist to her in 1952. From Bill Rehnquist to Sandra Day. When he was uh, clerking for Justice Jackson on the Supreme Court, and she was finishing the last few months of law school. Surprise! he asked her in these letters to marry him. And she had never, neither one of them, neither Justice Rehnquist nor Justice O'Connor had ever told their families about this. This did not they, come they, up at the confirmation hearing. Didn't come, sure it didn't, <laughs> although there is a funny story in there that uh, Harry Blackman, when, when she first comes on the bench, Harry Blackman, who sat next to Bill Rehnquist, leaned over and said, now no fooling around. <laughs> I think he thought he was making a little joke, yeah, but little did, but he know. little did he know. Uh, you know, in 1952, I doubt there was much fooling around, to tell you the truth. Right, right. But it was, you know, an ardent, these were ardent letters, and, and uh, uh, we ran them by uh, Janet Rehnquist, uh, who was news to her, mm-hmm. the daughter of Bill Rehnquist, and uh, she gave us permission to use them, and uh, the boys, Justice O'Connor's sons, gave us permission, so uh, we, we, we used them, and they're poignant. Anybody who's read more than a, like a hundred words about Justice Ginsburg knows about Marty Ginsburg and their love story. But this was a love story too. John O'Connor, Sandra Day O'Connor, you know, what he gave up for her, and she tried to pay it back at the end of his life. It was uh, he had had a full, not a full career, but a long career in Phoenix already. She was fifty-one. He was he was fifty-one when she was named to the court. So he'd been a partner at the top law firm, or a top law firm in Phoenix, and he was slated, I think, to be the managing partner, but so excited about the chance for his wife to serve on the, on the Supreme Court, and really um, worked to help get her there. And Lobbied behind the scenes. He did, and um, was immensely proud, but when he got to Washington, his type of law practice, a general corporate practice, didn't have a match in Washington. And he joined one law firm for a number of years, and it wasn't very successful. And then uh, he ended up, um, really many years later, joining a second firm that required him to be in Phoenix one week a month. So instead of being a, a proud lawyer, he started um, uh, drawing on his tremendous social skills. And so she went out for him many more nights than she would have so that he could dance, they could dance. He and he could, could be the wine. He could be the, the, the big cheese at mm-hmm. dinner, you know, yeah. telling stories. Right. And she would be quieter at those, yes. at those dinners. And she li- look, she loved to dance, and she loved, she's a party girl mm-hmm. in many ways. But she said... I, some of those evenings I would have been home reading briefs. She had to yeah, read about she, a thousand pages a day just to be a Supreme Court justice. And, and she did her homework. Out. She was not somebody who skimped. She did her homework. They wouldn't go out before oral argument. Right. The night before oral argument, they would not go out. But they did. They would do in Phoenix, they would do a couple show. Um, they would do skits together. They, she always laughed at his jokes. She would hear them 20 times, and she would laugh as if she'd never heard them before. And she just was charmed by him. And, uh, but she, he didn't feel threatened by her. 
Which is really interesting. Just, I mean, that's that's that is a great question, and we sure looked. <laughs> I mean, I because yeah. I, I thought he must be, but from all evidence, including talking to their kids at great length, he had a remarkable ability to be relaxed and at ease with her. She could be annoying and bossy. Mm-hmm. You know, she, that was the word she used, bossy. And the kids kind of roll their eyes and laugh about it. But they, the way they would tell, would she be off ordering everybody around? And he'd shrug it off. He'd make a joke about it. Yeah. He just kind of had this easy manner mm-hmm. about her uh, that was consistent. And I don't see any signs of jealousy. He was proud of her. Now, it was easier when he was in Phoenix because he's the big man. She, you know, she is the, at the beginning. She's the one, remember, she's the one who's at the top of her Stanford class. He's on law review, but he's not. But, he's, the, yeah. but, he, but he's the guy who gets hired by the fancy law firm. Right, with an office at the top of the bank building. She's hanging a shingle with some other poor schmo in the strip mall. So and he knows that. And he knows that. And yeah. so I think as a reporter asked him, Well, do you have any plans to practice law with, you know, Sandra? He says, No, no, you know, hold the ladder, I'm aboard. Uh, so he, he he was, you know, that's the way things were in Phoenix. Right. Uh, but he loved her political emergence. Talking about the way things were, one of the lines that, that sort of jumped out at me, you, you write about her ability to marry ambition and restraint. Yeah. Was that so? Was that sort of how she naturally was, or was do you think it was sort of her recognizing that this was the way to, this was the way to go forward? That's Phoenix such a great question. I mean, she certainly did that. I was so admiring of the... Chicken and an egg thing, yeah. I guess, is the She question. was obviously profoundly ambitious. I mean, yes. you don't become the first woman no. majority leader of a state legislature in history unless you're ambitious. Right. But she also was restrained, and she's always getting baited by the men. You know, imagine the Arizona legislature in 1970. One thing, a lot of them are drinking like crazy. On the floor. On the floor, holding tea glasses that are not full of tea. And, uh, and, and, And giving her a hard time. One of the things they did, she would, when she got nervous, she would have this little shake, involuntary shake. Mm-hmm. And Alfredo Gutierrez, the, the leader, the Democratic leader, said, I used to say to my colleagues, watch, I'm going to make her twitch. One of the things I found really interesting, too, was that she wasn't close with Justice Kennedy. You know, you'd think that they would be sort of two peas in a pod, but maybe they were too much alike. Well, and, and you didn't, I, you didn't interview respectful. with him. You didn't They're always him. respectful. He did not. I. Uh, we tried. We tried. Yes, I was okay. certain of that. <clears throat> we tried. And, uh, you know, he ultimately didn't. He, sure. I think, I'm guessing that he's going to write his own memoirs. I don't mm-hmm. know that, but that's a guess. Uh, but in any case, he didn't talk to us. He, I, I think it's not that they were hostile, but they, and they started out closer. Mm-hmm. But so there, there's various things. For one thing, she's quite an unemotional, non-rhetorical opinion writer. He's not. He, he, you know, he writes. He writes about his personal feelings. So they have different styles in that sense. She was a very kind of let's not agonize over the problem. Let's move on. He, by his own description, is an agonizer. Uh, they moved apart. Uh, eventually, they were together on abortion on Casey, but uh, uh, by the time of what they call partial birth abortion, which is sort of a misnomer, he's he's moving away from her. She was the, the you, you call her the most powerful Supreme Court justice of her time. She didn't really have much in the way of judicial philosophy, no. as they say at confirmation hearing. She was like, what's the right result? I, I, How I, do we get there? I was interviewing her. You know, we should talk about she had she had dementia, so you have to, my interviews all have to be seen in a certain context. But it amused me. I started to ask her a little bit about doctrine, and she said, oh, those kooky ideas. <laughs> 
Now, this is somebody who had dementia, so right, take, it, take it. But she said it with that kind of a wicked smile. And I, you know, if you look at her jurisprudence, she was not big on doctrine. And she didn't like law review articles. Her clerks would talk about this. She's not often citing law review articles. In fact, she didn't. She would kind of urge her clerks not to be law professors, or at least be the dean. She wanted them to be in the arena, prosecutors and judges, and you know, corporate counsel and all that. Uh, so she had a. I'm not sure it's an aversion, but she wasn't. She just wasn't doctrinal. She was what she was was pragmatic, and she is in a great tradition of pragmatic justices, starting with. You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes. The, what's the, the expression of the logic of the laws is is real? I think there's, there's some famous Holmes line. Uh, the law comes less from logic than from experience. And the the point is, and this would be relevant to Justice O'Connor, is you have to look at the actual impact of decisions. You have to look at the real world. You can't just be reading law review articles about doctrine. And so that's why Scalia, for example, was so frustrated. There was no doctrine. No doctrine. And, uh, and and Scalia was really frustrated, and he didn't hide it. Well, that's a point, though, at which to say, as, as Evan said, that it's it's not just no doctrine. It's a concept. It may not be doctrine, but it's a concept that what the court is doing is it's helping. It's a part of the government, and it's sometimes sending back decisions to the other branches of government to try again. People think of the Supreme Court as the last word, the last place, the last, the final judgment. That's not really the way she saw it. She saw it as part of a conversation with other branches of government, that on the very tough societal issues, you had to let them evolve gradually. And she was all for, she would write these narrow, concurring opinions, very fact-based, that often would push things back to the state legislature or the local courts or the, or the federal courts to continue evolving on things like, big things like abortion and affirmative action Mm -hmm. as a long-term societal institutions working out a difficult problem. Now that's not necessarily a definable jurisprudence, but I think that's a pretty accurate description of what she was doing. It's a mindset. It's a mindset. A a doctrine. So when she hauled Tom Daschle and Trent Lott to her chambers, I'm trying to imagine that going on now. Wow, I wish I knew more about that. I called those guys. I first heard this from a friend that uh, Dashiell, that she'd hauled up Dashiell and Gingrich. Gingrich said no. no and it turned out to be Dashiell and Lott. Okay. Lott wouldn't speak to me, but Dashiell did. And he said he was a little taken aback by the whole thing. A little thing. bit. Uh, when the, these are the majority leader and the minority leader of the U.S. Senate are summoned to a justice's chamber to One be elected. One's a Democrat, one's a Republican. Because she thought the conversation had become uncivil. Justice O'Connor was big on civility. I mean, back in the state legislature when people abusing her and insulting her. She was she wanted to be civil. And with her colleagues, with her fellow justices, when when Justice Scalia is mocking her, she wants to be civil. She really believed in civil discourse and civility. And so when the Congress is becoming uncivil in the nineties, she summons up the two leading senators and gives them a lecture on being more civil. Trying to imagine that happening today. No, forget it. Or what sort of what the public reaction would be? It's a little bit on the edge on, yeah. on sort of uh, separation, separation of power powers. stuff. Yes. I've asked about it. People kind of shrug. I don't have a whole lot of detail on it either. I mean, I've told yeah. you what I know. It is, but it, you have to remember though, <clears throat> she wasn't saying this is. She wasn't taking a side on a on an sure. issue. Sure, yeah. sure. She was just saying, 
You boys get along. Get along. Right. You know, do better and show the public that you're leaders and that you, you can uh, enact laws without bickering. This is maybe an interesting detail. I don't know. What to make. I had her calendars. I, that meeting was not on her calendar. That is interesting. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It did happen. It, did it happen. happened. I'm sure. You can ask Senator Daschle. It happened. Oh, no. I believe you. What What would you say, what would you say her legacy was as a justice, and what would she say? Oh, that's was? a good question. Man, that's a good thing Osi, my wife's here. She can answer that question. <laughs> well, let's, I'll, we'll split it up. I'll say, okay. I'll say my take on her legacy was that she understood that the court had to be sensitive to reality, including the public mood, and to work with the facts as they are, and to decide, not just kick every decision down the road, they had to decide, but to do, very, to do it very mindfully of, 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 of the pragmatic realities. And um, I think we have to start, though, with a um, major part of her legacy is that she was the first woman and she would say early on, you, uh, it's good to be first, but you don't want to be the last. And she was very conscious of uh, being a success on the court. And she came in aware that she was mid-level state court judge and that constitutional law hadn't been her favorite class in, in law school. And yet she just put her shoulder to the task and, and grew to love it and, and grew into the job and, and uh, did it beautifully for 25 years. The, 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 the specific manifestation of her, her approach are the two big, big ones, affirmative action and abortion. She is, she's sort of against affirmative action, but she's the one who saves it, as one of her clerks said. She and on abortion, she was very ambivalent, but she's the one who saves it. Undue burden is the law of the land because of her, and uh, affirmative action in higher education has lasted this long. These two things may go but away, still there right now. but they're still there yes. because of her. Yes. I'm going to sort of return. You know, she was very conscious that she was setting an example, not just for the nation, but for her clerks. Yes, yes. well, there she is. I mean, so they had started to hire women clerks. A few had, Blackman had, Powell had, one here, one there. She always tried to have two women, partly because she knew that was a way for them to really get into the top tier of the mm -hmm. legal profession. When Justice Rehnquist um, was on the Supreme Court, she much later told someone who later clerked for Rehnquist, who was a friend of her son's, she said to him, he had that opportunity, it's something yes. I had always wanted to do, but couldn't because she's right. a woman. Yeah. And so it's, it's um, and then soon after that, she was named to the court itself. It seems sometimes that she was almost setting an impossible example. You, know, you can yeah. go to aerobics, you can have a family, you can Her coach talked about that. This is all great, but how do we, that's great for her, but how do we do it? I love the story where she urged him to go home, and someone said, does that mean you don't want the memo first thing in the morning? And she said, no, I still want it. <laughs> she came back to her chambers once, and, and after an event, and was surprised to see her clerk still there. Quote it must surprised. have been 10 or 10.30 at night. And she said, you go home now. So they all dutifully went out of the building with her. She went down to her car, left. 
They all went back into the building, back to work. <laughs> so she, she, one of them, Lisa Kern Griffin, I yes, Lisa Kern said that she wasn't just giving us a lesson in being good lawyers; she was giving us a lesson in life, and it was to notice people, notice things, be caring. Never be ashamed of taking care of people. Yeah. Uh, Give good dinner parties. (laughs) (laughs) Work hard. Uh, You know, work hard. Yeah. She she would take them on outings. She would take them, make sure they always saw the cherry trees blooming. Whenever they bloomed, it could be raining or sleeting, and they were going to go see those cherry trees. Forced marches down to the cherry trees. (laughs) That's right. Because they would never see them again. They were only clerking for one year. She didn't think many of them would come back to D.C., and uh, she thought it was important. One of her clerks, it wasn't exactly stopping to smell the flowers, but racing to smell the flowers a little better. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think we should say that, that the clerks were, as, an, as a group, individually and as a group, very nice. Very mm-hmm. nice people, very um, lovely to talk to us. And they they said to us that we, we, one interviewed, of her, we interviewed 94 of them. She had the I, I know, I've noticed your yield was very high. 108 yeah, clerks, yes. we interviewed 94 of them. Because she had um, asked, told them that it would be all right with her to cooperate, and she hoped they would, and they did. And she ended up staying in touch with almost all of them, and they were very fond of her, and we could tell that. Most of them, certainly. Most of them, yeah. She called their children grand clerks, and, and she knew their families, and it was quite, a, quite a, an achievement. Have the O'Connor boys, the sons, have the sons read the book? Yes. Yes? yes. What, what did they say? I think you could have to ask them. I okay. think they liked it. Okay. You know, think so. they, they learned about their parents <laughs> through the book. Yeah, they don't. You know, this, I've, I've had this experience writing other books. Families know things, but mm-hmm. they don't know everything. Right. They know what they know, but there's a lot they don't yeah. know. And so I think the, the boys learn from it. I... I you know, they were helpful, and, I, you know, I hope they liked it. Ocean Evan Thomas, thank you very much for, for, for the book. Thank and you. Thanks for sharing the yeah. time with us. Thank sure, you course. very thank much. You. That's another episode of Skoda's Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Andrew Hamm, Edith Roberts, and John Levitan.